Hello and welcome to the podcast for the January 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane and Helen Frankish here to give you highlights from the first issue of the year. Helen, let's start with the research article and this is looking at galantamine for severe Alzheimer's disease. I guess the first assumption here is that galantamine, the drug for AD, has already been out for a while. So what specifically were these investigators looking at? You're right, Richard, that the drug's been out for a while. And this cholinesterase inhibitor, galantamine, improves cognitive function and behaviour in patients who have mild or moderate Alzheimer's disease. But there's very little data on its safety and efficacy in patients who have severe Alzheimer's disease. And in this study, Alistair Burns from the University of Manchester and colleagues randomised over 400 patients who were living in nursing homes and had severe Alzheimer's disease, defined as an MMSE score of 5 to 12 points to either galantamine or placebo. And after six months of treatment, the cognitive function of patients who received placebo had worsened by three points on the severe impairment battery, whereas those who were given galantamine showed an improvement of two points. And this difference was statistically significant. However, on the co-primary outcome of change in patients' ability to perform activities of daily living, as measured by the activities of daily living score, there was no significant overall benefit of treatment and the scores deteriorated slightly in both groups of patients. It's an interesting study, Helen, and is it unusual for an Alzheimer's trial like this to be a placebo-controlled trial? In the UK, at least, the cholinesterase inhibitors are only approved by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence for use in patients who have moderate Alzheimer's disease, and the drugs should be stopped, NICE says, on cost-effectiveness grounds once patients progress to severe Alzheimer's disease. So current clinical practice would be to start patients on cholinesterase inhibitors when they are at an earlier stage of disease, rather than starting treatment in patients who have severe disease. And there may be some differences between de novo treatment in severe disease and continuation of treatment that was started when a patient had mild or moderate disease. So presumably one of the main, if you like, conclusions from this study is that among elderly people living in nursing home type situations there could be a population of people with severe AD who actually could benefit from this drug. So you're right, and this study doesn't look at costs, and the aim wasn't to question the validity of the NICE guidance. But as you say, the results do suggest that there are some patients with severe Alzheimer's disease living in nursing homes who would benefit from starting treatment with galantamine. Also, Helen, you have a research article, one of these, for me, dreaded impenetrable genome-wide association studies. This time we're looking at CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which, of course, came to prominence in the pages of The Lancet. The first case was reported back in 1996. Since then, 12 years ago, 200 people worldwide have died. From a genetic point of view, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just going to display my ignorance to everyone listening to this. One thing we have learned is that for people who have died, they've had a very specific genetic profile, this methionine genetic profile, yeah, where where they're homozygous for methionine, which basically is the key genetic factor, which means they start coding the rogue prions that eventually cause the clinical symptoms of the disease and, and sadly death in all cases. What is this study setting out to achieve? 
So as you said, Richard, there have only been about 200 deaths worldwide from variant CJD, but many millions of people have potentially been exposed to the infectious agent that causes the disease. And experts have suggested that many people could be infected with the disease, but that the time between infection and development of symptoms could be longer in some people, and the incubation time or a person's susceptibility to variant CJD might depend on their genetic makeup. So as you mentioned, one genetic factor that is known to affect susceptibility to prion diseases is the polymorphism at codon 129 of the gene that encodes the human prion protein. And at this locus, either methionine or valine is encoded. And all patients that have developed VCJD to date are homozygous for methionine. And this suggests that people who are heterozygous or are valine homozygotes might be less susceptible to VCJD or perhaps have longer incubation times. And what do they do in this study, Helen? John Collinge and colleagues from the Prion Unit in London report the first genome-wide association study of patients with CJD. And in the initial phase of the study, samples from all 117 patients who had died from VCJD in the UK and controls were genotyped. And the researchers then tried to replicate these findings in samples from patients who had died from other prion diseases, including sporadic CJD, iatrogenic CJD and Kuru, a prion disease that was transmitted by cannibalism among some populations in Papua New Guinea. And the strongest association that they found was with the methionine-valine polymorphism at codon 129, and three other weaker associations were found to be significantly associated with VCJD, some of which were replicated in other prion diseases. But the key question remains, Helen, and I think it's fair to say that we just cannot answer this question at the moment, is that we do not yet know whether there is a huge population of people out there who are have a genetic profile which means they might be at risk but a more latent risk of developing CJD or whether you know these mm. polymorphisms identified in this study may actually not lead to anything at all and it's picked up in a comment isn't it? That's right. Both the authors of the study and the commentator Hans Kretschmar are in agreement that this study supports the theory that there are genetic traits that are associated with susceptibility to VCJD or incubation time or both. However, the degree of influence and mechanisms that might control susceptibility are not known. And as Hans Kretschmar puts it in his commentary, a second wave of CJD with a longer incubation time might hit these shores, but we do not know whether this will be a tidal wave or just an imperceptible ripple. Thanks, Helen. And let's just cover briefly a couple of other topics. You've got a research article called the CHIPS study, and this is looking at acute stroke and blood pressure lowering. What's the background here? Well, many patients have raised blood pressure when they present at hospital with an acute stroke, but the optimum management of raised blood pressure in the acute stroke period is not known. In particular, there are concerns that reducing blood pressure could be harmful. And the CHIP study is a pilot study in which 179 patients who presented with either a hemorrhagic or an ischemic stroke and a blood pressure greater than 160 millimetres of mercury were randomly assigned to receive blood pressure lowering treatment or placebo. And death and dependency at two weeks was similar in the treated and placebo groups which suggest that lowering blood pressure in the acute stroke period is safe. 
and mortality rates at three months were lower in the group that received blood pressure lowering treatment. But as the authors point out, this result should be interpreted with caution in view of the small sample size. And just to wrap up, Helen, quick summary of a review you've got, and this is looking at amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or motor neuron disease, as I call it. I guess the, the background here is this disease has been known about for many, many years. There's only one drug treatment out there, isn't there? It's a very difficult disease to manage, and it's always fatal, and the average time from diagnosis to death, I think, is around two and a half years. Though it can be decades, and it can be much shorter time than that as well. So basically, it's been around for a long time, but we don't know much about it. So this review is talking about the potential of biomarkers to inform our knowledge. What does that mean? Well, as described in this review by Martin Turner from the University of Oxford and colleagues, biomarkers of disease could be useful in several respects. So first, it normally takes about a year from the first onset of symptoms to diagnose a patient with ALS, which means that there's a delay in receiving treatment. And a diagnostic marker might enable patients who are at risk to be screened and identified and hence receive treatment sooner. And secondly, trials of potential treatments for ALS generally look at the effect on outcomes such as survival time, which can take many months to assess. So if biomarkers that correlate with disease progression could be identified, they could potentially help to identify drugs that might be beneficial, as well as exclude those that are not effective. Thanks very much, Helen. Those were some of the highlights from the January 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Much more next month. Thanks for listening.